Let's pray together as we come to this uh, troubled church in Sardis. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we engage with your word tonight, you would help to make it clear to us and show us what it is we need. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I was at a friend's place uh, a couple of years ago and we were hanging out in his backyard and I noticed that he had a a peach tree there uh, and there was fruit on the tree. Now, I love peaches, so I asked him if I could perhaps partake of one and he said, yeah, I wouldn't do that if I were you. And then he showed me why. He grabbed a peach, uh, which looked, you know, perfectly fine and edible to me and then he uh, cut it open. Uh, The inside of the peach was riddled with squirming maggots. Yes, disgusting. Uh, The peach was entirely inedible, uh, unless you like maggots, uh, which I do not. And my friend explained to me that the tree was once good, it once produced fruit that you could actually eat, but at some point insects had infected the tree uh, and their life cycle was tied um, to the fruit of the tree, so when the fruit began to ripen they planted their eggs and unfortunately that was when the uh, larvae would hatch and make the fruit disgusting. So the fruit of the tree, it looked completely fine on the outside, but on the inside, it was totally rotten. Well, there is something rotten going on in the church of Sardis, the church we are looking at today. We come to this church that looked fine on the outside, but inside was in grave spiritual peril. And out of all the churches that we see that receive letters in Revelation 2 and 3, I think Sardis is the one you don't want to be. Uh, It's the church that is really, I think, in the worst spot. And as we've done with each of these churches... We should reflect on how we are going uh, in comparison as individuals and as a church. But surely we couldn't be, you know, as bad as as Sardis. Well, it's clear that the members of Sardis did not realise that they were in a spiritual crisis. They thought they were going fine. And for full disclosure, I don't believe that our church is uh, the same point of where Sardis was. But it is possible for what happened to Sardis to happen to any church, including ours. And so the big question, I think, is what is it that makes a church spiritually dead? What does it look like? And how do we avoid it? And I think it's good that Jesus makes the church of Sardis uh, feel uncomfortable. They probably would have felt uncomfortable as they read this. And that he makes us feel uncomfortable because he does this out of love, uh, to show us our problems and then to show us what it is that we need. So, if you've got uh, a physical outline there, we come to our first point, which is that you cannot fake your spiritual life. This city of Sardis uh, was a city past its prime. It was once a mighty fortress city that was a center for trade, which made it very wealthy. However, its glory was fading and its residents could cling on to its former reputation, Uh, but it wasn't what it was. And like the city, the church's spiritual life was fading. Now, we're told the church of Sardis had a reputation, or more literally here in this passage, a name for being alive. But we aren't told why they had this reputation. Perhaps they were a church with lots of members who were very active. Perhaps they were a church with a close community uh, full of very nice people. Perhaps this church had a, a known legacy of faithfulness in the past. But whatever the reputation, we see that it did not match the current reality. If you, I've got your passage there, look at verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Their reputation 
was that they were doing great. Maybe they thought that themselves. Jesus says, no, you are basically dead. Uh, It's two pretty divergent assessments, isn't it? But how could they be dead? How could the church be dead? I mean, its members were still up and about walking and, and talking. Well, the church was outwardly alive, but inwardly it was spiritually dying and almost dead. Effectively, uh, they were spiritual zombies. And it's possible for a church to look very alive and active on the outside. You might say, well, look how good that church's music is. You know, look how many social activities the church is running during the week. Look how vibrant this church's community is. Look how impressive its building is. Look how many young people are in the service. But these are not real indicators of spiritual health. I mean, what did Sardis lack? What made them spiritual zombies? Well, basically everything. Note that unlike uh, the other churches we've seen, where Jesus would commend the strengths of that church, he has nothing, nothing good to say about Sardis. There is no mention of the faithfulness in the face of persecution, like you saw at Smyrna or Pergamum. Now, this is a city with a large Jewish population, and surely if this church was spiritually alive, Uh, They would really be caring about their Christian witness, and that would actually lead to pushback uh, from the non-Christians in their city. But it seems that the church's witness was so weak, so innocuous, that they weren't even worth persecuting. We see there is no mention of the church being able to distinguish between good and evil, like the church at Ephesus. Uh, Given the reference there in verse 4 to soiled clothes, Uh, It's very possible that it meant that the church, that many in the church had entirely bought in to the surrounding pagan culture and were taken in with idols. There is no mention of good deeds of love and faithfulness like you see in Thyatira. In fact, their works, we're told, are incomplete. They are lacking. Surely if they were spiritually alive, they would be seeking to grow in love and service and godliness. See, from Jesus' assessment, we see there is a complete lack of God's power or any sign of spiritual life. It seems like this church is a a hollow shell. And perhaps what is most troubling of all is that they couldn't sense the danger. One of the reasons that um, carbon monoxide is such a dangerous gas and it's a really bad thing to have a a carbon monoxide leak in your house uh, is that it's incredibly hard to detect. Uh, It's called the silent killer for a reason. It's odorless, colourless, Uh, and tasteless, but deadly and dangerous. There's something going on in this church, something deadly that is happening, and it's having, clearly having an effect on them, but they don't see it, they don't realise their predicament. And the reality is, I said you can't fake your spiritual life, but people do try to fake their spiritual life all the time. I mean, you can be present and go through the motions, but inwardly uninterested. I mean, you can come here to church, but really just be here for um, the community and to hang out with people. I mean, you can, you can pray the prayer of confession like we did before, but really that can just be words. It can just be action, but no heart. And I wonder if the, perhaps the biggest threat to our church is not that we would embrace some radical new heresy. It's not that we would fall into some kind of de- depraved and wild godless living, although those things are threats. But no, I think our biggest threat is that we would just drift away like a raft at sea from Christ. It's that we would get spiritually lazy or lethargic, instead of being, you know, physically tired. Uh, we, we're lazy in, in our lack of desire or concern to have anything to do with Christ. If someone were to uh, crack you open, uh, not literally, but metaphorically, and look inside you and, and see your spiritual life, 
what is it that they would see? What would they observe? Would they say, would they see that you are concerned about God in your everyday life and how He shapes it? Or is it mostly other distractions? Uh, Is the idea of growing more mature as a Christian exciting to you? Or does that sound kind of too, too difficult? Do you care about the things of eternity, about seeing other people become Christians? Or do you feel like you're more caught up in the here and now and what's coming, on, coming up on Netflix and you're more excited for that? Do you want to engage with God uh, in His Word and in prayer? Or is that too much of a chore? Are there signs of spiritual life in you? And it's an important question to ask yourself because you cannot fake your spiritual life ultimately. Sure, you can fool others, but you cannot fool Jesus. Uh, If you look at verse 1, we see this as we see his ownership over the church. Uh, And in the one hand, we have Jesus here holding the seven spirits of God, which refers to the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's the Spirit of God which can actually give life to the spiritually dead, which Silas was definitely in need of. And in Jesus' other hand, you have the seven stars, which you may remember uh, were the angels or the leaders of the church. And what we get from this picture is Jesus' lordship over the church, uh, that it's in his hands. He has the power to protect it, to preserve it, but also to cast it away. And he knows what is going on in his churches. And it's our reputation with Jesus that ultimately matters. Uh, It's not the opinion of your, your neighbor or the Blue Mountains Gazette, or or the Archbishop of Sydney, uh, that our church should ultimately be concerned with. No, it's the opinion of Jesus that really matters. He is the one we are accountable to. And He loves His church. Like a good carbon monoxide alarm, Jesus loves His people by seeking to warn them and alert them to their peril. Verse 2, Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. This church needs to wake up and see that it is on the precipice of disaster. And yet not all hope is lost. There is something remaining. Uh, There are still people in the church who are faithful. This church is badly wounded, but even bad wounds can be healed if they would just wake up from their spiritual lethargy. And I suppose the question is, how do you wake up from this spiritual lethargy or tiredness? Well, I think the answer we receive to that is in verse 3. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. In the marriage course uh, that we've run in the past and we'll be running again in the future, uh, one of the first questions that you get to uh, talk about with your spouse is, what attracted uh, you to them in the first place? And it was a nice activity when when I did it with my wife. You know, got to remember why I fell in love. And as I reflected on it, I realized that some of the reasons I love my wife now uh, were actually different than from when I first met her. You know, I'd grown with with new and good reasons. But the reason that we have come to love and to hope in Jesus should be unchanging and the same. See, Jesus wants His church to remember why it is they bear the name of Christ in the first place. It appears they'd once been a church that had accepted and responded to the gospel, but this enthusiasm had faded. So they need to come back and remember and be enthusiastic once again for the hope they had. And this comes in remembering what they have in the gospel. Because when you consider what we have in Christ, when you really consider it, and what He has done for us, you can't be indifferent to Him. Let's just reflect on this for a moment. How relieving is it that we have been saved from hell itself 
by Jesus' work for us on the cross. Just think for a moment how relieving that is. And now let's think for a moment again. How good is it that we get to spend eternal life with God forever? It is good, right? Sins forgiven, a perfect relationship, eternal glory awaits. I mean, you can't overstate how precious are the promises that we have in Jesus. And if we realize that Jesus has done this for us, how is it possible to just keep drifting along like this doesn't change us? If the gospel is true, then of course we need to care about our personal relationship with God. If the gospel is true and important, of course we need to care about our outward witness to the world. If the gospel is true and important, of course we need to care about doing the good works that God has prepared for us in advance to do. And I think all of the church's problems, they come back to the fact they had forgotten how good and important the gospel of Christ was, not in abstract terms, but how good and important it was for them. That is what they needed to come back to and to respond to and repent. Unless they hadn't actually got it. Perhaps that was the reason that Jesus tells the church they are so close to spiritual death. It's very possible that many in the church hadn't actually understood what it meant to be a Christian and were in fact just completely spiritually dead. You can be uh, baptized as an infant and be a member of a church for 20, 30, 60 years and not be a Christian. And to not actually have a faith and a relationship with the living God. I mean, that's, that's a bad place to be, but the solution even to that is the same, to come to Jesus, to see what He has done for you and to repent. See, this church needs to wake up and needs to remember and repent, because there is a great danger if they do not. Verse 3, But if you do not wake up, I will come to you like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Uh, it was thought uh, at, at one point that the fortress city of Sardis was completely impossible to capture. There was even a proverb, uh, as hard as capturing uh, the city of Sardis. Except it had been captured twice, and it happened through sneak attacks. Soldiers in the dead of night uh, had climbed in through the side of the mountainside, uh, into the city, uh, and let the enemy army in. And it happened because uh, the city watch were not prepared or watchful, they were lazy. Likewise, if this church in Sardis would not heed Jesus' warning and they would continue to be arrogant and spiritually lazy, then there would be serious consequences for them. The fact that Jesus does not say when or how he will come to them, I think actually makes his warning more foreboding. And it seems likely here that John is not speaking of a final judgment, but something more immediate will befall them if they, if they do not repent. But I think that's a, that's a scary thing because uh, if it does happen, it seems that the church will no longer exist. See, Jesus is the one who holds the church in his hand and he has a right to judge it. We cannot think that Jesus is indifferent in how we respond to him as individuals or as a church. And we see throughout history, churches have come and churches have gone. Here's just one example. In the 20th century, uh, Many of the major Protestant denominations, Anglican, Baptist, Presbyterians, uh, many of these churches which had a long and faithful legacy of gospel ministry went down a different path. Uh, in an effort to be relevant to the world, they no longer held, they decided to no longer hold to the divine inspiration of the Bible and held that it could have errors. Kind of bouncing off from this, 
They then cast aside core Christian teachings on doctrine, rejecting hell, uh, rejecting the exclusivity of Jesus for salvation, rejecting the resurrection. They cast aside Christian teaching on on different ethical issues like sexuality and marriage. Uh, They pushed the importance of evangelism to the side. And what happened to these churches that went down this path? It's tragic. They have overwhelmingly declined uh, and many have shut down and and they will not last. Uh, Because people aren't stupid. If the church becomes exactly like the world, then what does the church have to offer? Now, we need to know that Jesus will not bless the church that forsakes him. Uh, It may have numbers, but it will not see true conversions. Its people will not mature, it will not be sustained and it will not be a place where salvation is found. We need to wrestle with this. It's a, it's, a big, it's a big thing. But Jesus will bless those who do not forsake him. And so we should want God to know our name. It's the final point in my outline, if you have it. Verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. See, there's still a minority of those in the church holding on to Jesus and who rightly bore the name a Christian. The idea of, uh, of having soiled clothes is probably picking up on a, a cultural thing at the time where uh, if you were a worshipper and you wanted to go worship your deity, you couldn't have stained or dirty garments. They wouldn't let you in. Kind of like a um, religious RSL dress code, you know, no thongs allowed. But the soiling that was going on here was that these members had bought into the cultural practice and the pagan world around them, which while that had freed them from persecution and suffering, but that had disqualified them from coming before God. And on the other hand, you have those in the church who will wear white robes, white robes being symbolizing uh, purity, holiness, victory, being fit for heaven. And we discover later in Revelation 7 that uh, those who have white robes have those white robes because they have washed um, themselves in the blood of the Lamb. Now, you might be thinking of that image and thinking, wait, blood, red, white, okay, But the point is uh, that we, uh, through the blood of Jesus, we are made white and pure before God. We are justified. We are accepted before Him as righteous, fit to enter His presence and to worship Him. And so how can it be that in this same church, in this same group of people that are meeting together, how how can they be seen so differently? And I think what we see here uh, is the importance of perseverance, of, of sticking with Jesus. See, salvation is only promised for those who stick with Jesus. And those who have soiled their garments have effectively given up on Jesus in the way they are living like the rest of the world. And while those who wear white have stuck with Him. Uh, the Christian life, it's not a boarding pass or, or a magic ticket where you kind of get it and then you can go and do whatever you want. Uh, while you're waiting for the flight to eternity. No, the Christian life is the life raft that we are holding onto, knowing that we need to stick with it to be safe, but knowing that it will get us where we want to go. So how does one receive the white robe? Well, it's, it's through Jesus, through trusting and continuing to hold to Him. Verse 5, The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life but will acknowledge that name before my Father and His angels. And all of this being able to be 
dressed in white and coming before God. All of this is so that God would accept us. And so, as we see here in this passage, that he would know our name. Now, I remember as a kid, I lived in England, uh, and I really wanted to make uh, the school soccer team or football team. And I would go to trials, and then afterwards, a couple of days later, I'd go and see the piece of paper that had the list of names of people that were on the team. I'd go and look, and I was never there, never there. It wasn't good enough. And I knew they were pretty good. Uh, And I always came away disappointed because I wouldn't get to experience all the great benefits of being on that team. It was a bit bit of a status thing. And I don't know if you've ever had the uh, disappointment of not being accepted on some team or, I don't know, school play or whatever it is. But the hope here is that God does know our name, which means that He knows us. Uh, it's, it's a relational thing. For God to know your name means that you are on the team, that you are one of His people. And that comes with all the benefits of being on His team. If your name is written in the book of life, That means your name will be acknowledged by Christ on the last day and you will be accepted into God's kingdom. That's much better than a soccer team. It's much better than anything, really. And that should give us great assurance now as we live our life that no matter what happens, that Christ is with us if we stick with Him. Our place in His kingdom is secure because He knows you. And there is nothing as good as having Christ know our name There is also nothing as terrible as having Christ not know us. I wonder what what would be the scariest words you could ever hear. I think it is these, and it comes from Jesus in Matthew 7. I never knew you. Depart from me. On the last day, these are the words that you do not want to hear. And it's possible right now that you uh, you are here and you're realizing, actually, I don't think that Jesus does know me. Actually, I don't know if I am on his team. I guess what you need to realize is that you need him. And can I encourage you to see that you need him? He is the only way to salvation. He is the only way that you will be dressed in white, that, he, that you will be acknowledged before God the Father, that you will be accepted into his kingdom. So come and see that he is good and trust in him. You don't want to be caught out like the people of Sardis. So to conclude, as we think about this letter to Sardis, I think we have a really great legacy um, here at Anglican Church's Springwood. I think we've had a, a long history of faithful ministry. But let us not rest on our laurels and grow spiritually lazy like those at Sardis. We don't want our faith to be like the peach, oh, my friend's tree, you know, good on the outside, but spiritually dead and festering within. Let us genuinely strive together to strengthen and deepen our relationship with God to be spiritually alive. Let's keep returning and remembering that great gospel, the great gospel of hope, that Jesus, uh, through which Jesus encourages us and empowers us to live zealous, obedient lives for His glory. Let's hold fast to Him, the one who gives us the great assurance that He does know our name. I'm going to pray now. So please pray with me. Gracious God, we we thank you that uh, your son, Jesus, uh, is Lord over the church, that he does hold us, that he does know us, that he does preserve his people. We thank you that sometimes you make us feel uncomfortable and sometimes we must ask hard questions of how we are, are going and where we stand before you. Lord, if it comes to our attention that we are uh, 
and spiritually dead. Uh, Please open our eyes to that so we might return to you or might see you for the first time. Please revive in us, uh, please revive us by your Holy Spirit uh, so we might uh, bring all of our life um, under the Lordship of Christ. And we do thank you so much for what he has done for us and that he knows our name and for the great assurance that that brings. We pray all this in his name. Amen.